Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Ken Ochiang Opalo about his 2019 book, Legislative Development in Africa, Politics and Postcolonial Legacies, published by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Opalo is an assistant professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Opalo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yes. So I am uh, an assistant professor uh, in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a political scientist by training. Um, I was born and raised in Kenya, uh, came to the U.S. for undergraduate, uh, ended up staying to get my Ph.D., um, and it, it was during the PhD program that uh, I got interested in, on, in the question of political development uh, and institutions uh, more generally. And uh, that interest then drove me to uh, become a little bit more focused on the institutions of legislatures. Uh, because when I began looking at intra-elite politics and the study of institutions more generally in political science, uh, I noticed uh, this big gap uh, as far as the study of African legislatures went. Uh, and so that's that's how I started developing an interest in trying to figure out, uh, you know, what explains the variation in the strength uh, of legislatures and autocracy uh, and under what conditions can democratic legislatures emerge from their autocratic foundations. Um uh, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, about that because, uh, you know, I'm a historian, not, not a political scientist, but I, I have noticed uh, a significant lack of literature uh, about um, legisl- legislative bodies in, in general. And uh, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that literature, whatever it exists from from the political scientists. Your book is very historically focused too, so I, I imagined you also uh, know the, the historical literature, as, as it's obvious in in, in your um, in your book and in, in your introduction. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit of just about the the state of that uh, of that literature, of that historical and uh, from both sides, from the historical and from the political science, what do uh, we, before you book? What would a, a, a reader find if if he tried to encounter this um, this topic? Yes. So um, uh, before my book, uh, uh, within political science, um, uh, broadly defined, uh, there there had been this uh, very robust literature on legislatures in North America and Europe. Uh, with a smattering of studies of legislatures from elsewhere. Uh, But the core theory, uh, theories and empirics that drove our understanding of legislatures were ideas uh, from the evolution in particular of the uh, UK parliament, the parliament in the United Kingdom, uh, and uh, the United States Congress. 
Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as, as a researcher, it quickly became clear that some of those theories were not applicable in uh, the context that I study. For instance, uh, one of the core ideas behind legislative strength is the notion that uh, legislatures control the budget. They have the power of the purse, and that's, that's a, an important source of their power. So that, you know, Congress in the United States can force a government shutdown. Uh, Parliament in, in medieval England, you know, went to war with the king and could deny him, uh, uh, the king or queen could deny them resources for war. And that was a source of uh, concessions from the monarch or the U.S. executive to legislatures. But when you look at uh, legislatures in many developing countries, uh, that's not true. Uh, many of these legislatures were created uh, under colonial uh, administrations and were actually created to be weak. Uh, and so at independence, they had these overdeveloped executive branches uh, relative to the legislature. Uh, and so, you know, while the process of legislative development in, in the U.S. and Europe uh, is defined by this balancing of power between strong legislatures populated by uh, elites who can actually balance the executive, in the developing world, what, and in post-colonial world in particular, uh, what you had were, you know, these strong presidents uh, who then uh, presided over regimes that had very weak legislatures. So legislative development in post-colonial contexts had an overdeveloped executive branch and a weak legislature. And so the evolution of legislatures in those contexts was a process of catching up. Uh, and so in the book, that's what I try to analyze, this process of legislative development in the shadow of a strong autocracy. And then the second thing in the, in the particular case of sub-Saharan Africa, um, what happened is that uh, as soon as many African countries gained independence in the 60s, there was an initial attempt to study these institutions. Um, unfortunately, by the mid-70s, many African countries which had uh, gained independence under quasi-democratic systems quickly descended into autocratic single-party rule, a pattern that was, you know, fairly common across the world at the time. Uh, you know, Latin America's dictatorships, uh, the last ones began to fall uh, fall in the 80s. In sub-Saharan Africa, the late 80s, uh, also the, the time many of these dictatorships fall. Uh, and so what you see is that uh, as countries were becoming more autocratic, the study of legislatures died uh, because most scholars assumed that these legislatures uh, were epiphenomenon or, you know, uh, not uh, influential uh, as far as, you know, politics and actual policy outcomes were concerned. Uh, and so uh, part of my effort is also in addition to coming up with theories that uh, explain legislative development in post-colonial context, uh, one of my efforts is also to show that, you know, uh, these legislatures under autocracy actually were influential in, in recruiting elites uh, providing arenas for intra-elite politics uh, and for stabilizing uh, politics in African countries in different ways. I found that that particular uh, point uh, incredibly important, um, not just uh, from the point of view of um, uh, you know balancing. Uh, the, the historiography and understanding how politics evolved from colonial times uh, through the present time, uh, but but also largely because it, it it sort of allowed us to 
sort of move beyond uh, both the temporal and sort of like the single actor explanation, isn't it? Um, so I, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit. The, the second chapter of your book is a broad historical overview of uh, legislative development in Africa. And in addition to this, uh, especially from colonial times, and you make a, a very good case of how important the, the, the specific differences between uh, not just between how uh, legislative bodies were created in different colonies, um, but how the transition to independence happened in, in each particular colony, how those um, had a lasting impact on, on, on the, for, on the uh, subsequent development of those bodies. Uh, can you just give us uh, maybe a couple of examples of like the differences and what, difference, what differences actually uh, mattered in, in trying to understand uh, the comparative development of, of different bodies in different colonies? Uh, yes, and uh, thank you, thank you for that great question. Um, uh, if, if I may begin by, uh, you know, just giving some background on why uh, I, I wanted to get at the details of legislative development, especially in the late colonial period. You know, one of the uh, more famous studies on institutions or the impact of colonial institutions uh, is a paper by uh, Asimoglu, Johnson, and Robinson that. Uh, basically looks at uh, uh, settler mortality uh, during the colonization era across European colonization uh, across the world uh, and uses that as an instrument to then explain institutional outcomes in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s uh, across the world. And the general finding is that places that uh, had high uh, rates of European mortality uh, 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 were therefore not colonized and, and had extractive institutions established there. Uh, and because of that, uh, they've had uh, uh, worse outcomes in the present and places that had low uh, European mortality uh, had uh, European settlement and institutions uh, set up, productive as opposed to extractive institutions. And that explains uh, present day uh, good outcomes, if you will. Now, you know, uh, while that story may be broadly true, uh, I think in order to fully understand the process, we needed to know the details. Uh, and, and the details were, were that, you know, it's, it's definitely true that one of the uh, primary uh, uh, ways in which colonialism influenced post-colonial uh, institutional outcomes, uh, and, and I, sh I should also add that, you know, much of the existing literature on institutions actually doesn't study a particular, you know, concretized institution. It's often, you know, the outcome of interest is often economic growth, rule of law, protection of property rights, etc. And so my motivation was to say, let's look at one colonial institution, legislatures, which were established under colonialism, and then track them over time and see how they involve, they evolve from their founding uh, to the uh, moment of independence, and then what happens after. And so one of the key findings in the book is that time matters, right? Uh, older legislatures are stronger. Uh, and this is, this is uh, kind of obvious, but also not so obvious, because if you consider the case of, say, Kenya, uh, right? So the Kenyan legislature is, say, is relatively older compared to the Zambian legislature, which I also look at in great detail in the book. Uh, in the case of Kenya, uh, the legislature is founded in 1907, uh, in Zambia, it's about in 1924. 
Um, in the case of Kenya, even though, you know, black Kenyans are not allowed to be part of the legislature until the mid 40s, uh, just the fact that, you know, the legislature was older uh, meant that over that time, uh, the institution had evolved uh, to have processes and procedures and a culture uh, that when even when um, black Kenyans were finally able to join uh, their incorporation and socialization into how the legislature worked um, uh, made the institution stronger, uh, relatively stronger at the point of independence. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, while uh, you had uh, variation within British colonies, Kenya and Zambia, uh, to make this point, you need to, uh, you just need to look at, you know, the contrast with, say, French or Belgian colonies in Africa. Uh, so on average, British, former British colonies in Africa tend to have stronger legislature in, legislatures in part because uh, the British uh, colonial administrations typically had established legislatures right off the bat. In the French case, uh, at independence, uh, the typical French colony uh, had a legislature that was only 16 years old uh, because many of these territories, uh, 14 years old, sorry, many of these territories gained uh, territorial legislatures in 1946, and then it's a quick sprint uh, to 1960 when they become independent. Uh, and so colonial age uh, of legislatures is 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 a st- strongly correlated with post-colonial legislative strength. And the mechanism there is just, you know, the process of socialization, development of culture. Uh, you know, the entire political economy is then structured to engage with legislatures as important political actors. Uh, and that culture then persists even after the colonial administration has left uh, and then post-colonial elites are in charge. Um, related to that point, um, I guess we, we could move um, uh, to start to sort of connecting that to to what you do in, in chapter three, which in a way, as, as I was preparing for the interview, I, I I think like the question that was answered to me is why legislatures become really important even under this, um, uh, like you mentioned, overdeveloped. Uh, I mean, like right after independence, we don't have necessarily, we don't have a quick jump into authoritarianism. But like you said, uh, they didn't, we, we uh, African nations did inherit a very overdeveloped executive. Um, so even though they're not right off the bat autocracies, uh, they still have a significant amount of power. And that sort of balancing of power is not something that comes right away. And, and you present these really interesting um, uh arguments about how, uh, despite that uh, seeming uh, uh, seemingly uh, great power that executives have, even at the moment of independence, uh, whether it's the executive or whether it's like a, a ruling party, for instance, um, there is still like a need for legislatures. They're, they're still, they still serve an important purpose. Um, and, and I think uh, when you talk about sort of credible commitments, et cetera, that, that you talk about in, in chapter three, um, you make a very interesting point about that. Can you tell us about um, what, it, what, what makes legislatures important, but at the same time, something that needs to be t- kept under control? Uh, yes. Uh, so, um, you know, no one governs alone. Uh, right. So even the most uh, autocratic leadership needs elites uh, who can comply and 
and help in projecting the power of the autocrat. And so, so students of autocratic institutions uh, have credibly shown that you know autocratic institutions matter. Uh, and in the case of legislatures, uh, one of the primary, you know, the le- legislatures under autocracy serve uh, four key functions. Uh, one is uh, the incorporation of elites into the uh, regime. So uh, in order for uh, autocrats to be able to govern, uh, they need a minimum ship proportion of elites who are invested in the regime, and legislatures provide a credible commitment in that regard. Uh, in the sense that, you know, once you have elite sitting together in a council or a legislature, uh, that uh, it's a, it becomes a credible commitment because it, uh, the legislature allows them to be able to organize and to monitor the autocrat. And this is useful because uh, governing through force alone can, can quickly become very costly, so that even the most ardent autocrats uh, still rely on some modicum of compliance or, you know, quasi-voluntary compliance from elite and the masses alike. Uh, So just as a matter of intra-elite politics, legislatures play that important role of uh, enabling intra-elite bargaining uh, and and political stability. A second function is uh, the function of uh, information. So, you know, uh, any government whether democratic or autocratic, ha- always has an information problem. You know, knowing what people actually want uh, or knowing what is actually right and ought to be done, right? So having a legislature allows elites to debate, to voice their, their concerns uh, 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 to the autocrat uh, and to uh, voice the concerns of, of citizens or other interested groups uh, in society. Uh, and that is also an important function. Uh, because you can imagine that, you know, if, if, if you're an autocrat uh, who is feared by your regime agents, uh, sometimes, you know, your regime agents often have an, an incentive to lie to you uh, because they don't want to be seen in a bad light, especially when things aren't going well. So it helps to have an institution that can uh, reveal information that may otherwise not be uh, available for the autocrat. And, you know, we typically tend to assume that autocratic legislatures uh, uh, are uh, you know are often on complete lockdown, uh, lacking any any information, uh, but that couldn't be further from the empirical evidence, uh, right? If you look at uh, you know uh, the legislatures that I study in Africa, uh, whether it's in autocratic Tanzania, Zambia, Kenya, Senegal, uh, what you see are you know even under autocracy, uh, there's the, the, there was always room for debate. Uh, within bounds set by the autocrats for sure, but there was always room for debate, uh, and there's ample evidence that those debates actually eventually influenced outcomes. So that in the 80s, when Tanzania is, for example, trying to pass a budget that legislatures don't like, uh, they delay that process and force the president to reconsider. Uh, and, And that's information that was revealed just because legislators were debating the budget. Um, now, uh, 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 another function is uh, the function of representation. Uh, so, you know, in addition to worrying about elite elites, uh, autocrats have to worry about the masses, uh, and, you know, it helps to have the masses feeling like they're represented and incorporated into the system. Uh, that provides uh, a mechanism for insu- uh, ensuring, you know, uh, political buy-in from the masses and pre- uh, preventing mass rebellions. Uh, and 
and it provides an interesting feature of, le- of autocratic legislatures in the sense that, uh, you know, if you look at Kenya, Zambia, uh, Lisa Blades has a fantastic look at uh, legislatures in uh, the legislature in Egypt. Uh, what you see is that the autocrat allows for competition, uh, relatively open competition at that, uh, because they want to uh, signal that they care to, to know that the people in the regime uh, who serve as part of the regime's legislature are actually people who are reasonably popular among the masses. Uh, and so you see high turnover rates. Some of it is engineered by the regime for sure, but uh, some of it is also driven by uh, a genuine popularity contest. Um, uh, and then finally, uh, you know, the same legislatures uh, also serve to reveal information about elite interests, uh, right? So, you know, if you have a legislature, uh, you can uh, have elite buy-in, uh, but it also provides the autocrat a means through which to monitor elite behavior uh, so that uh, if an elite steps out of line in the legislature, uh, you, uh, the autocrat can begin to see what their true preferences lie and maybe purge them. Or should an elite become too popular with the masses, uh, they can also be purged. So that it's, 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 it's always a balancing act, uh, right? And then that's a, another uh, lesson that uh, I, I hope come th- comes through in chapter three, that uh, politics does not, uh, uh, is not non-existent under autocracy. Uh, there's quite a bit of politics under autocracy uh, because, you know, governing is always a balancing act. Uh, and over time, you know, there are periods when uh, elites uh, uh, have relative power, are relatively more powerful vis-a-vis the autocrat. Uh, and during those periods, they get more concessions. Uh, and then when the autocrat has more power, uh, they can extract uh, concessions from uh, fellow elites. Hmm. Very. Uh, thank you for that explanation. That was um, very, very clarifying. Um, now, uh, the next three chapters, you, you introduce your case studies. You have two comparative case studies, Kenya and Zambia. And um, I, I guess the, the one question I remember having as I started reading these three chapters, because they're so rich, um, is, um, well, w- if you had, I mean, obviously you had this very, very uh, rich um, body of evidence about Kenya and Zambia. W- why did you, uh, at what moment you realized that you could, extend some of the arguments uh, that you were, uh, what you were seeing in the Kenya and Zambia examples to other parts of Africa, and basically that you had possibly um, something to say about legislative development in Africa, or even in the post-colonial world more generally uh, than just in Kenya and Zambia. Yeah, so the the process was uh, iterative uh, in the sense that uh, when I got interested in, in the question of legislatures, um, uh, one of my advisors was, was cautious, as, as advisors ought to be, and you know, wanted to make sure that there was there there uh, before I invested an enormous amount of time in studying legislatures. So I collected data uh, to, that, uh, to, to establish whether there was interesting continental variation uh, on outcomes of interest. Uh, and after you know, after finding out that yeah, it, it is true that uh, legislatures vary in in their strength uh, uh, and and capacities over time. Uh, 
it also helped that uh, 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 Joel Barkan, who unfortunately passed away uh, a number of years ago, uh, he had done some work uh, in an edited volume, uh, also you know trying to revive uh, the study of African legislatures and showing that uh, there were there was interesting variation and raising interesting uh, potential questions that researchers should examine. So having had this continental overview, um, Kenya Kenya became the natural uh, country to study uh, for, for the simple reason that uh, you know many works on legislatures, especially Barkan's work, had pointed out that uh, Kenya has one of the stronger legislatures on the continent. Um, and, and you know, the other countries being uh, South Africa uh, and then much smaller polities like, you know, the Seashells, uh, Cape Verde, Mauritius, Botswana to some extent. Uh, and so Kenya was in that sweet spot of being a big enough African country uh, with interesting variation and, and uh a legislature that was gaining in strength. And so I became more curious uh, and, and, and started looking into the Kenyan case. Uh, and while doing that, um, uh, Zambia became the next thing because, in, in part because there, there have been very interesting Kenya-Zambia comparisons. Uh, and and it, it helped that you know both were former British colonies with a substantial European uh, immigration and settlement in the early uh, 20th century, uh, which made them interesting comparative cases. And then it was during that process of uh, reading more about colonial legislatures in Africa that I started threading these patterns, uh, right? Uh, it quickly became clear that, uh, you know, the British administrations were very eager to establish uh, local legislative councils as soon as they could. Uh, in Francophone West Africa, uh, uh, France throughout its colonies across the world had this system of assimilation Whereby instead of establishing strong cons- uh, institutions in the in the in the colonies, uh, colonial elites were actually represented in Paris, and I argue in the book that that's also you know a strong uh, reason why uh, former French colonies have weak legislatures because they did not have territorial legislative institutions for long during the colonial era. So you know it, uh, to answer your question, the process was looking for. Uh, interesting variation that I could explore uh, settling in on one case uh, being Kenya, looking for an interesting comparative case, uh, going back to the the history and reading up on the rich history, uh, which is in chapter two, uh, and then uh, uncovering these broad patterns uh, that appear to exist uh, in the uh, historical record. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm always curious about how this um, decisions get made uh, at one point, or or when does the like the bulb turns yeah. on you know, in your head? It's like, oh my god, this, I've seen this before, or this this could go well together. Um, but anyway, now that we are into fully into chapter four, um, uh, tell us a little bit about those. You know, what is the comparative value between Kenya and Zambia? You, you talk about why is it that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities. They're both uh, British colonies, um, but there's something very particular, uh, uh, obviously, that that th- uh, took these two um, ex- uh, these two states in in very different directions when it came to their uh, legislative development. So can you tell us a little bit of what, what those differences were? Uh, yes. So uh, let me start with the colonial era differences. So uh, Kenya as a colony, uh, 
is actually established as a colony by accident because the British uh, administration at the time was actually more interested in Uganda than uh, the territory that later on became Kenya. Uh, but once it was established, uh, uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, uh, arable land that attracted a lot of settlement from the UK. Uh, much of the settlement was in agriculture, and that will become in, uh, important uh, is important for reasons that will become apparent shortly. Uh, and and it was also settled by uh, a more upper class, relatively upper class uh, British and South African uh, people, uh, colonial settlers. Zambia, on the other hand, uh, is colonized in the process of Southern African colonization more generally. Uh, and uh, it's the colonial settlement is mostly driven by mining and some agricultural interests. Uh, but it's the mining towns in the Zambian Copper Belt that attract uh, waves of European settlement. Uh, the, uh, colonization in Zambia uh, also evolves in the shadow of uh, the politics of South Africa and racial segregation in South Africa. And so as these colonies are progressing uh, through the first half of the 20th century, what you have are very distinct types of politics in both places. Uh, so, you know, in Kenya, the, the conflict uh, becomes about land. Uh, so uh, uh, there's quite a bit of land expropriation uh, beginning in the early 19-teens uh, from Africans, land that was then expropriated and given to European settlers. So African agitation was for land, uh, favorable labor policies, uh, and, and generally uh, fair treatment by the colonial administration. In Zambia, uh, uh, the challenge is about uh, rights in, in the urban copper belt. Uh, you know, the mi- African mine workers battling it out with uh, 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 European mine workers uh, and the mining companies that were running the mining towns in the copper belt. Now, in, uh, in, in the Kenyan case, there's a colonial legislature, the Legislative Council that's founded. Uh, it begins as... Uh, Europeans uh, as a Europeans-only institution, uh, South Asians are included, uh, then Africans are included. Uh, importantly, the mainstream Africans, uh, uh, African elites who lead the independence movement uh, are part and parcel of the uh, Kenyan legislature, uh, especially beginning in the late 50s. Uh, so uh, one characterization of uh, the Kenyan ind- ind- independence movement is that it is fairly institutional. Uh, in the sense that uh, the leading elites who lead the decolonization process uh, are socialized into the habits of the colonial legislature uh, in the period leading up to independence. In Zambia, uh, because of the race politics of Southern Africa, uh, so Zambia at the time is Northern Rhodesia. Southern Rhodesia, as some of your listeners may know, is currently Zimbabwe, uh, also run by a minority white government. And then, of course, South Africa was also run by a minority white government. And one of the uh, fears of uh, Africans in northern Rhodesia at the time was that uh, northern Rhodesia would look something like either southern Rhodesia or South Africa. And so race becomes uh, this major sticking point uh, across the board, uh, which leads to uh, a complete rejection of most of the colonial institutions. Uh, So 
you know, to summarize everything, in, in Zambia, the decolonization process is in many ways extra cons- institutional. Uh, so that in, instead of having an institutionalized process of socializing uh, future elites, um, uh, because of uh, the clo- because of the failure to compromise on the question of race and racial exclusion, the Zambian decolonization process is one of rejection of the colonial institutions. Uh, so that uh, the leading elites, uh, very few of them, are actually part of the Zambian Legislative Council, uh, and and it, it you know being part of the Zambian Leg- uh, Re- Legislative Council, uh, the Northern Rhodesian Council, uh, becomes uh, you know a blotch on one's career because it's seen as collaborationist. While in the Kenyan case, there was never that sense that, you know, joining the LegCo was collaborationist. Uh, in fact, you know, these, these were celebrated heroes because they were seen to be winning the institutional fight. Now, uh, one other thing that we should recall uh, about Kenya and Zambia is that uh, political development in Kenya, while it is institutionalized, it's also heavily ethnicized. Uh, so that, you know, what you had in Kenya were very weak parties based on districts that were created along ethnic lines. Uh, so Kenya also progresses towards independence with a very weak national uh, independence party. Uh, in Zambia, because it's it's incredibly urbanized uh, as early as the late 30s, uh, the uh, uh, Political development is also not strictly along ethnic lines. Uh, so you, you, you know, you have in UNIP uh, in, and and previous parties in the the ANC and then UNIP uh, parties that were not strictly speaking uh, ethnic parties. So in Zambia, you have a truly nationalist independence movement uh, with a broad based national party, uh, uh, or at least a lot more national of a party than. What you see in Kenya in the Independence Party Kanu, which is essentially a confederation of district-level come ethnic parties, um, and so on the eve of independence, uh, when you when you look at the institutional development and its future successes, uh, it is fair to say that the Kenyan legislature was a lot stronger than its Zambian counterpart, and that a lot more of the future post-colonial elites in Kenya were a lot more socialized in the habits of how parliaments work in Kenya than they were in Zambia. Oh, thank you. And, and I guess that that uh, sort of sets the stage for what happens uh, through decolonization, and which is uh, the subject of your fifth chapter. Um, you know, when you talk about this, how you know, these executives uh, interacted at this moment uh, in the cases of Kenya and Zambia uh, with their specific legislative bodies. Um, And and you obviously touch upon this, 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 um, this this particular institutions, ruling parties and, and um, other administrative apparatuses that had been inherited or in, in, in the case of Zambia, like you said, kind of try to rebuild them as a, as a way to, to reject that colonial legacy. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the interaction of all these different bodies and, and what is the outcome in, in terms of the legislative strength of, of legislators? Yes. So um, um, uh, this, in, in thinking about what happens after independence, uh, uh, and, and going back again to chapter three, uh, uh, I, I, I came up with this idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think about legislatures in isolation from other institutions of state. 
uh, right? So uh, 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 the conceptualization that I have of the processes of, of legislative development after independence uh, hinges on examining, you know, what were the options of projecting power for post-colonial elites? Uh, because post-independence, presidents in Kenya and Zambia faced the challenge that they have to govern with the legislature, uh, right? So the question then becomes, how do you manage elites who sit in a legislature? Um, and while it's true that uh, presidents could balance legislature, legislatures, uh, there are lots of examples of uh, times when legislatures actually tried to overpower presidents. Uh, so there was always going to be politics. Um, and what happens post-independence is that uh, in the Kenyan case, you have a weak national party, uh, which uh, it, you know the president then fails to empower, in part because the party at the time was dominated by uh, a faction that was not uh, fully in line with the president's ideology. And so the president wants to weaken the party uh, even further than it was at independence. And because of uh, the weakness of the ruling party in Kenya, parliament then emerges as the institution of intra-elite politics. Uh, and so debates that could have happened in, in the party, as, as, as they did in Zambia, actually happened in the legislature. Um, I also have this notion of means and ends independence, uh, right? The idea that, you know, under, well, under autocracy, presidents always get what they want. It matters how they get there. In some contexts, presidents will set the goal and allow the legislatures to figure out how to achieve the goal. Uh, in other contexts, you know, presidents will write the law and force legislatures to just have an up or down vote uh, on it. In the Kenyan case, because the party was weak, uh, the president adopted the former option, which was setting the goal and allowing the legislature to uh, find its way to the goal. And I argue that you know this this uh, idea of means independence uh, allowed legislatures, uh, the legislature in Kenya, to develop the institutions, internal institutions needed to uh, to be able to evolve and grow as an institution. And you see this in the number of seatings that the Kenyan legislature has, uh, the number of bills passed, uh, and just the content of the debates. In Zambia, well, as I said, what you get is a strong nationalist party at independence. Uh, and the party is so strong that it actually overwhelms the legislature. So that while in Kenya, party weakness was accompanied by legislative strength, what you get in Zambia is that the strong party actually substitutes for the legislature. So that what you get is that uh, debates happen within the ruling party UNIP. Uh, and because the UNIP is dominated by the president, uh, the president essentially runs the show. Uh, such that you know you have major constitutional amendments that are passed with very minimal debate within a single day in parliament. Uh, so the Zambian parliament lacks means independence in the sense that everything is decided outside of parliament and the parliament merely rubber stamps uh, policies coming out of the unit. Uh, and so this the uh, the the pro- and and I part of the one of the explanation of this process is that uh, because of the uh, Zambian president's incentive to basically abandon colonial institutions, including the colonial field administration architecture. Uh, the president had a fairly strong party, but a weak administrative su- uh, structure. And so, you know, it, there was this paradox of, you know, strength and weakness 
combined, that the president had a strong party but an inability uh, to fully control the country because he lacked this uh, administrative infrastructure to actually control the country. While in Kenya, you have this weak party but a strong administrative structure so that the president could actually cede power in Kenya, some power to elites, knowing full well that he had an administration that could help him balance the elites if it came to that, you know, monitoring uh, what elites were doing uh, and actually influencing outcomes on the ground. Uh, and so uh, part of the reason why the Zambian president does not allow for means independence is this fear that uh, while the party is strong, uh, the party could also be hijacked by uh, fellow elites. Uh, and so he hoards all the power. And so th- the uh, because of this, over time, uh, and time is a very important variable here because institutional development takes time. Over time, the Kenyan uh, legislature develops the institutions needed to grow and become a strong institution, even under autocracy, while the Zambian legislature uh, finds itself stunted over time. Hmm. Um, one of the, I think, um, strengths or one of the things that I found particularly, uh, I was particularly amazed in your book is how you managed to, uh, I mean, you, not only do you have a wealth of data, but the data is, is, is used in, in very insightful ways. And, um, so I wonder if you, like when you talk about means independence and uh, ends independence, you have a very specific way to measure those things. Uh, like you said, you talked about sittings in parliament, uh, uh, time spent debating, time, uh, number of bills that have been um, uh, passed by parliament, etc. both, you know, uh, before the transition to uh, multi-party politics and after the transition to multi-party politics, etc. So uh, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that process of, of uh, deciding what was the, what were the, what were the right measures um, that would help you uh, substantiate your arguments uh, and just the process of collecting, collecting this data. It just seems uh, quite an endeavor. Um yeah, so I, sh- I should say that, you know, one of my ins- inspirations was, uh, uh, you know, just being very envious of my colleagues who study American politics and, and all the data they have, uh, right? So, you know, if you study the U.S. Congress, debates are readily available, uh, the uh, voting records are readily available, um, uh, you know, congressional uh, time is tightly tracked and everything. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I didn't want to just write an institutional history uh, uh, of these legislatures. I, I wanted to get at some of the politics uh, in them. Uh, and, and so, uh, because, you know, it's, as, as, as a social scientist, I also wanted to have some, something that was empirically tractable so that I, uh, we could have, you know, evidence to support the claims I was making. Uh, and and to, to get uh, the measures of legislative strength, uh, uh, an important uh, influence was the work of uh, Paulsby, who who was uh, an, a student of the U.S. Congress, and you know he has these measures of institutional strength. Uh, so you know the degree to which institution an institution is bounded from the external environment, so internal rules and practices and procedures, uh, the uh, the. The degree to which you know members see themselves uh, again as a corporate entity, 
that is separate from non-members. Uh, so, you know, in, in Chapter 7, when I look at the electoral dynamics, you know, I'm trying to get at, you know, is it the case that it's hard to get into this institution or not? Um, and, and, and that then pushed me to look for concrete ways of measuring this. And so the idea behind uh, tracking uh, the, the share of executive bills passed uh, uh, was to ask, you know, is it the case that these parliaments were merely passing bills, every of the bills coming from the executive, or wa- uh, was there a scope for them to actually debate and, and kill some of these bills, uh, right? Uh, and and uh, I really like that measure in part because you can imagine that presidents will only allow debate on bills, especially on autocracy, on bills that they're comfortable to see passed. And so, you know, seeing that even in autocratic Kenya, right, the passage rates were well below 90% uh, was encouraging and, and showing that these actually were, uh, uh, legislatures were actually putting, uh, having input in the uh, policies proposed by the president. Uh, looking at legislative time, uh, you know, time is a valuable uh, uh, commodity in legislatures, uh, the more legislatures meet, the more issues of state they can address. Uh, executive rulemaking uh, is an important expression of uh, executive power vis-a-vis legislatures, because, especially because in both Kenya and Zambia, presidents do not have outright decree powers. Uh, whatever decree powers they have are delegated by the legislature. So I wanted to see to what extent do presidents use that power without oversight from legislatures. And so, you know, the process of collecting this data, uh, because none of this was readily available for downloading online, uh, was to actually spend uh, about 13 months in both Kenya and Zambia uh, in, the li- in the parliamentary libraries and archives, just going through the records. Uh, and I was lucky that both countries have very good records. Uh, and so just going through the records uh, and, and manually uh, coding and recording this data. Uh, uh, thankfully, uh, since then, especially in Kenya, uh, some of these records uh, have now become available online and can be, they're still in PDF format, but they are available online uh, for download. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, to answer your questions about the data collection process, it was just hours upon hours uh, uh, in the library. Uh, I made very good friends. Uh, <laughs> and, and it also afforded me time to see how uh the processes that generated my data actually played out. Uh, so while at the li- at library at Parliament in Kenya uh, and in, in Lusaka in Zambia, I was actually also able to interview MPs and attend some of the parliamentary sessions uh, uh, in in the in the two legislatures. Mm, well, you know, those are the perks, I guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> from hours and hours in libraries. Um, it, one of the factors uh, that you obviously thought of uh, important enough uh, uh, as to be an, uh, a contribution or detriment, uh, whichever the case might be, to uh, legislative independence is electoral politics. Um, and I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why that factor was um, particularly important in, in your view. Uh, and what is it that it contributes? You know, what is that elections? Uh, I mean, apart from the fact that you know it's through elections, I guess that that legislators get into parliaments. 
Um, but but you have a very uh, compelling set of arguments here as as to why this is another aspect uh, of legislative development that we need to keep in mind. Uh, yes. So um, part of the motivation was uh, that you know elections are crucial for the representative function of legislators. Uh, right. It's 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 how legislatures recruit members, and so. Uh, it's a crucial element to the institutional politics of legislatures. Uh, the other thing uh, uh, that I was also very interested uh, in was that uh, time in the legislature is crucial for institutional development. Uh, strong legislatures have career members who are invested in the strength and prosperity of the institution. Uh, you know, they invest in knowing uh, how the legislative processes work. They invest in, in being experts in particular uh, issue areas, whether agriculture, education, uh, infrastructure. Uh, they invest in building the networks needed to uh, get bills passed. Uh, and they invest in uh, having, the, uh, uh, having the means to use the institutional power to effectively balance the president. And so uh, an amateur legislature is a weak legislature. Uh, because to to have the institutional memory and the skills needed to effectively use the institutional power of the legislature, uh, one necessarily needs to needs the time needed to build the networks uh, within the institution needed uh, for the uh, uh, for that purpose. Uh, and 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 so in the book, I make the strong case that you know strong legislatures uh, ride on the backs of strong individual legislators. Uh, and and to become a strong legislator, you need to spend more time in the legislature, and so you need to be able to be reelected. Uh, and you know, Mayhew, who is a, a scholar of uh, the U.S. Congress uh, and and politics generally, made this important point that you know, the U.S. Congress is designed to the internal organization of the U.S. Congress is in many ways designed to further the electoral interests of the members, uh, right? Members do most of the things they do to get reelected, uh, and that's part of their strengthening. Uh, so that you know, a strong legislature will have members who get reelected at high rates, uh, and then those members will further invest in their reelection. So, when looking at Kenya and Zambia, uh, one of the things that I saw was that uh, before autocracy, when these legislatures were not fully free, uh, members had relatively less control over their own career prospects. Uh, but if you look at the evidence post-1990, uh, with more freedom, they were better able to invest in their own re-election. Uh, uh, and the vote share, study, their relative vote share, uh, compared to uh, comparable challenges, actually began to go up. And you know, Kenya also has this very vivid uh, constituency development fund uh, which is a very clear attempt by incumbent legislators uh, after 2003 to get resources that they could use to invest in their own re-election. Uh, and I see that as part of this process of uh, incumbent legislators, uh, legislators trying to use institutional power to invest in their own political careers. Uh, and so um, uh, uh, one of the lessons of Chapter 7 is that uh, if you look at organizations like the UN, UNDP, uh, USAID in the US that promote uh, legislative strengthening programs, 
Uh, they often focus on you know very technical aspects of the lawmaking process, uh, drafting, how to set up uh, committees, etc. Those are certainly very important uh, features of legislative strength, uh, but you know uh, equally important or perhaps more important is this notion that you know legislatures are only as strong as their individual members, uh, and, and so having members who are capable of effectively serving their constituents and winning re-election uh, is a necessary step in uh, building the institutional strength and institutional memory uh, of legislatures that will then be able to fully balance executive branches. Good. Um, so having sort of gone through all those uh, last three chapters, I wonder if before we move to the, the full conclusions of the book, uh, we could start with just with the stating of, of like your uh, basic or not, not basic, but your most important conclusion, I guess, you know, which is what, what ha- or answer the question that you set up yourself to answer, you know, what happens uh, when and uh when, when, when this transition happens between uh, when the, either one of these two states, uh, either Kenya or Zambia, has to transition this time from a single party uh, system to a multi party system, and how the 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 what do you mean like having a, a, a legislature that had a certain degree of means or larger degree of means independence allowed for. Uh, a, 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 a legislature that was further along the way of becoming either a strong legislature or a, a stronger legislation, because I think you always present that, like you said, is, is a time continuum. Um, but Zambia was a little bit, or not a little bit, but was further behind precisely because it hadn't had. And especially what I found very interesting is how you, there's a strong correlation with the level of personal or, you know, political comfort that the autocrat had, you know, in a sense that if you, you mentioned if, if a strong, if the autocrat himself feels very comfortable in power, it, se- it seems to allow for greater um, independence of means. Uh, but if that is not the case, it has a much tighter control of the legislature and that in turn stunts the legislature. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of the argument? Because I found that, I mean, I think that's the part of the argument that seems the most counterintuitive, but uh, definitely bears out by the evidence. Uh, Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the ironies uh, of political development is that, you know, we we tend to lump uh, autocratic country, all autocratic countries in one bucket. Right, but if you look at the historical record, uh, right, the autocracies that are fairly stable uh, and seem to have stable institutional practices, and then the autocracies that are uh, largely chaotic in the sense that institutionally chaotic in the sense that you know elites actively undermine institutions, uh, and so the idea there was that uh, a strong autocrat who's confident in the ability to balance elites will allow for, uh, A, we'll have legislatures uh, as a matter of course, because it's also true that, you know, the uh, autocrats will abolish legislatures and just govern by decree. So you need some confidence uh, in the ability to balance legislatures to allow them to exist in the first place. And then if you're also confident in your ability to uh, effectively monitor them while they're serving in the legislature, will allow elites some modicum of means independence in arriving at outcomes. 
so that you know in Kenya, for instance, the president you know uh, couldn't stop legislat- legislators from electing a deputy speaker that he didn't like after the seventy four election. Uh, and he let it happen. Eventually, he arrested him after uh, uh, the emboldened uh, speak, uh, deputy speaker and some of uh, his allies went out of bounds. But it is telling that he let them go that far to begin with. But if you're an insecure autocrat, uh, right, even the mere existence of a legislature is a threat. Uh, so if you're forced to have it, you go out of your way to deny it means independence. Uh, and, and this kind of explains this spiral that we see or, you know, two equilibria that we see whereby some autocrats have some semblance of stability in autocratic institutions. Uh, and then you have some autocrats who uh, actively destroy all kinds of institutions. You know, countries like uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo under Mobutu Sissoko when it was called Zaire, which was a, a fairly deinstitutionalized country because the autocrat was uh, had this paradoxical uh, situation of being both strong but also very weak and insecure, uh, and so uh, such autocrats survive by destroying all potential centers of power, uh, including you know parties and legislatures. Uh, so uh, it's 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 a distinction that I think the literature needs to acknowledge that. Um, not all, all autocrats are the same, and that there's quite a bit of variation in this institutional strength of legislatures and parties and other institutions under autocracy. And now, on the on, on the eve of uh, uh, the return to multi-party politics in the '90s, uh, what you have is, you know, uh, what multi-party electoral politics does is it frees up legislature legislators under single-party rule. Uh, in both Kenya and Zambia, you could only be a member of parliament if you are a member of the ruling party. Under multi-party rule, uh, you could be a member of opposition parties. Now, that emboldens opposition uh, legislatures, legislators for sure, but it also emboldens members of parliament within the ruling party because they could defect and join the opposition. And, and that then forces uh, presidents to give more concessions uh, after countries uh, become uh, democracies. Uh, now, when comparing Kenya and Zambia, the uh, claim I make is that because the Kenyan legislature was stronger on the eve of uh, its freedom in, in the early 90s, it was quicker in uh, appropriating that freedom and using it to further strengthen uh, its own institutions and power vis-a-vis the executive. So you see, you know, a rapid plummeting of the share of president's bills getting passed in Kenya. Well, in Zambia, you know, if you look at the trends between 91 and 2001, they're fairly indistinguishable from the trends from, uh, say, 81 to 91. Well, in Kenya, there's a clear break uh, after 91 uh, because the president uh, rapidly starts losing bills uh, and notably, this happens despite the fact that the president uh, had a majority uh, in parliament, both uh, from 92 to 97 and uh, 97 through 2002. No, very good. Uh, that was uh, nicely uh, argued. And so in your conclusions, you you, you uh nicely recapitulate uh, some of uh, these 
other conclusions and both the historiographical ones, which I think are quite valuable in, in terms of developing new ways of studying um, post-colonial states and the development of institution in post-colonial states. Uh, but you also have a set of uh, more pragmatic recommendations, and you already spoke to some of them uh, in terms of what is it that uh, we need to be looking at? How is it that these conclusions uh uh, reveal new areas of uh, uh, investment, if we were to, were to put it that way, in order to strengthen uh, institutions uh, of, um, you know, post-colonial states. Can you tell us a little bit of some some of the insights that uh, people interested more in the policy side um, uh, of this debate uh, could learn from your book? Yeah, so from the policy side, uh, I think the one of the important lessons is that uh, you know, there's there's no better time to start investing in the long-term development of institutions like today, right? Time here is a very, very important variable. We see that, you know, think of the most autocratic, uh, you know, exclusionary form of institution, the whites-only colonial legislature, and the fact that uh, even that institution in its age uh, uh, actually has a positive impact on uh, post-colonial uh, outcomes, right? Institutions take time uh, and, uh, you know, regular, uh, regularizing and routinizing their processes uh, helps make them stronger uh, because institutions are a muscle. The more they're used, uh, the stronger they become. Uh, so, uh, you know, in both autocracies and the, uh, and democracies, uh, I think, you know, if 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 you can't invest in the uh, political aspects of legislative strength, at a minimum, one can invest in the uh, internal operational aspects of legislative strength, uh, and perhaps you know, persuading autocrats, at least the more secure ones, to allow for uh, means independence. Uh, because that's that's possible under autocracy uh, 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 to have legislatures that have a routinized process of of getting stuff done uh, within an institutional context. Um, the other thing that we should be mindful of is that uh, uh, that you know legislative strengthening cannot be an apolitical process, uh, right? Because a strong legislature necessarily means. Uh, a balanced executive, uh, right? So presidents will not willingly give up their power by allowing the legislature to be strengthened. Uh, and so part of the reason why some of the uh, legislative strengthening programs fail is that, you know, they t- typically have this naive assumption that that this can be a, an apolitical process. It cannot be an apolitical process uh, because uh, we need to be aware of the ways in which, you know, if you strengthen the legislature, they'll pass few executive bills. Smart presidents know that. They'll try to make sure that doesn't happen. So we should be alive to those concerns uh, and, and, and address them head on as, a, as opposed to trying to hide away from them. Uh, third, I, uh, you know, I should add that uh, uh, we should strengthen legislat- legis- individual legislators' uh, capability to fully serve their constituents. Um, and this is, you know, this is a an issue that uh, uh, is is has emerged since many countries in in Africa and South Asia and elsewhere have passed these constituency development funds. You know that those who see them as uh, an infringement on executive action, 
see them as, you know, fueling corruption and all. Um, but I would say that, you know, if legislators are going to win elections, uh, right, they need to effectively be able to serve their members. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we should think seriously about how we strengthen that bond between individual members and their constituents. Uh, because that's that's a vital source of legislative strength. Uh, members who have a, a personal vote and, and an independent basis of support uh, among constituents uh, is a member that can then be bold while in the legislature uh, to champion uh, their constituents' interests and, and to stand up to the executive when they step out of line. And so, you know, without, say, you know, uh, campaigning for any individual members, uh, I think it's possible to think through systems of constituency service uh, that would allow uh, or trainings in some con- uh, uh, in some places that would make members better able to serve their constituents while in office. Uh, and I think that would go a long way in you know, strengthening the bond between the vertical bond between uh, elected members and their constituents, uh, and in a, in an indirect way uh, strengthen uh, the legislature. Oh, and related to those two last last two points uh, in terms of uh, strengthening uh, members of the legislature, I think you make a very, very interesting point towards the end of the book about, for instance, how it makes a difference or it would make a difference, the means by which, for instance, gender quotas are met, Um which I thought was something that I hadn't, I wouldn't have thought about. You know, it's like you said. Generally, there's a, it's a good idea maybe to have um, a, a legislature that has uh, is gender ba- uh, balanced, if you want to put it that way. But that the means by which that is accomplished can either weaken or strengthen the legislature. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that that last point? Because I think it's it's, it's a really insightful one. Yes, because um, you know it's. It's a, a good example of, of, of the point you raise is Rwanda, right? So Rwanda has uh, one of the highest representations uh, of women in, in, in legislatures, but the means through which it was achieved was through a party process uh, which leaves the, uh, the, legisl- the women legislators actually accountable to the current president as opposed to you know, constituents uh, in, in, in real ways. And and so you know I think that the, there's evidence from India, uh, worked by uh, Rikil Bhavnani and others, showing that uh, we can use quota systems that allow uh, uh, female politicians to run and win elections. Uh, and indeed, you know, once people get accustomed to seeing the female leaders, uh, they actually you know shift their bias, some of their biases, and are then able to elect more women after having seen the demonstration effect of having effective women leaders. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, I think instead of uh, rushing to nominate, uh, uh, have like a nomination slot for, a uh, reserve nomination slot for women leaders uh, or, or parliamentarians, what we should be doing is perhaps uh having systems that al- allow for, quote-unquote, regular election uh, of these same leaders. Uh, because, you know, when, when we, when we uh, create nomination slots, what we're doing is effectively empowering the same people we want to check uh, 
to be the ones electing uh, a significant proportion of the legislature. And that serves to weaken the legislature. Instead, you know, in order to keep that bond between parliamentarians and constituents, uh, we need to have uh, these members elected regularly. Uh, and, and, and because of that, you know, one of the conclusions I make, as you point out, is to insist on, you know, uh, a first preference for uh, this uh, uh, quarter system uh, that's based on elections as opposed to a system that's based on nominations. Now, it should be said that in some contexts, you know, elections may not be possible for a variety of social political reasons. Uh, and, and, you know, for that, for the, for in those contexts, uh, right, uh, having women uh, nominated <clears throat> might be the way to go. Uh, because indeed the evidence shows, and and you know some of the work that uh, I'm looking at now, the evidence shows that uh, even nominated uh, women uh, legislators actually move the needle as far as uh, spending on social issues goes, uh, uh, relative to predominantly male legislatures. Uh, so you know, nomination is a second best, uh, but a first best would be uh, a push for. A quarter-based electoral process. Mm, thank you, thank you for that uh, explanation. Well, it seems like uh, we might have been taking a little bit too much of your time. Uh, before we say goodbye, could you just tell us a little bit of what you're working on right now? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, I have two main projects right now uh, that I hope will inform uh, future book projects. The first is on the politics of educational reform in Tanzania. Uh, I'm part of a, a big team of PIs looking at educational reforms in Tanzania since 2012. And uh, I'm also interested in just uh, thinking more broadly about uh, the history of uh, education policy in East Africa and the politics around it. Uh, that's ongoing work. Uh, we have a couple of papers that should be coming out soon. Uh, our working papers that should be coming out soon, and uh, I hope to develop that further over the over the next couple of years. Uh, the other new project I'm working on is on the politics of devolution in Kenya, and here I'm interested in the question of subnational service provision and its impacts on uh, political knowledge. So, do citizens know their politicians and do citizens know which tier of government is responsible for what function and how does that affect how they respond to uh, uh, public provision of uh, the provision of public goods and services? Uh, here too, you know, uh, my historical biases will show the, the project is designed to uh, look at how the historical experiences of national administration and, and local authorities in Kenya continues to influence the implementation of uh, Kenya's contemporary devolved system, which was established in 2013. Uh, so those are the two main projects that I'm working on, and uh, I have some other uh, ancillary projects on the politics of electoral management um, uh, and uh, uh, questions about uh, use of technology in elections uh, that are also informing some of the papers that I'm uh, working on. Well, we definitely look forward to hearing all about um, 
both, if not all of those projects. Uh, but for now, what we I want to thank you uh, for being in our podcast today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners uh, enjoyed it just as much as I did. Uh, so thank you very much and take care. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being being here and sharing my work. <laughs>